Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are revisiting a conversation about floral mimicry. I had this conversation with Dr. Kate Goodrich back in 2018, and her work is amazing because it peels back the complex ways in which plants go about reproducing. Now, Dr. Goodrich's work is all about chemical ecology, but in this conversation, we're focusing on a plant many of you will be familiar with, the pawpaw and its relatives. There's other pawpaws in North America as well. Go ahead and look them up. I've got an article about them over at indefensiveplants.com. Regardless, this is a fascinating dive into a plant that's widely appreciated but poorly understood, and people like Dr. Goodrich are doing the best they can to peel back some of the mystery. Before I get to that, I just want to say if you're enjoying this podcast and you want it to continue, please consider supporting it. One of the best ways you can do that is by picking up some of our customizable merch. You can find that at indefensiveplants.com. Just look at the top and click on apparel, or you can find it in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. All of our merch is customizable, and it is a fantastic way to contribute to the show and look good while you do it. But that is entirely enough for me. Let's jump into it. Without further ado, here's the conversation I had with Dr. Kate Goodrich. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Kate Goodrich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Um, okay, so I, I'm a botanist. I guess that's a given on your podcast, <laughs> but um, I'm currently an associate professor at Weiner University, which is right outside Philadelphia. And I have been here for, I guess I'm going into my ninth year, so I feel like I've been here for a while. But I have a PhD in, well, basically chemical ecology, plant scent, and my research is generally in that area, although I've branched out in a couple different areas that are unrelated. But that's what I love, so I keep coming back to it. <laughs> and that obviously comes through in your research. But uh, for those that are kind of curious how you go from chemical ecology to plants, you mentioned floral scent. You know, were you always a plant person, or were you more of like the chemistry side of things, and plants just offer a really convenient system to ask super interesting questions? <laughs> that's that's a great question <laughs> because. <laughs> Um, honestly, a little bit of my background, too, I was, as an undergraduate, a theater major and a biology minor, um, and in part, that was because of chemistry. I guess I was sort of the stereotypical undergrad afraid of chemistry, afraid yeah. to take all of those requirements, and that kept me away from doing a full-on science major, um, which was silly. I mean, you know, sometimes you make sort of odd choices when you're young and you don't, I don't know, you get more clarity as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> so... I did that and then went to work in a hospital and did some medical stuff for a little bit. And mm. then when I was getting into graduate school, I went back and took chemistry, knowing that I would need it and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Huh. Um, and at the same time I was taking those undergrad classes, I got involved with botanical research in a professor's lab, just because I really was into the idea of research. And that led to botany. She was a botanist, happened to be a tropical botanist. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was from her. And it was, you know, it doesn't really matter what you work on. It matters what kind of questions you ask. Hmm. Um, I tell a lot of my undergrads that. So I love botany. I've always liked plants. I had a mother who was sort of an amateur botanist um, growing up. But, yeah, I, I didn't specifically start in botany, say, in high school and just sure. go in that direction. And honestly, the people that do start that early, I think are kind of rare. You know, it's it plants, 
at least historically, from my point of view, have not been sold to kids all that well. But it's, yeah. it is it is cool to think about the trajectories people go through to get to where they're at today. And, and it's really refreshing to hear someone else say, you know, I was really bad at chemistry and it scared me away from <laughs> science because I'm sure yeah. that is something that many people can share with you on this. But to, to find something you love and then come back to it definitely helps. And, and it sounds yeah. like, you know, taking it on a more serious level from a graduate level really kind of reopened those doors and said, oh, okay, this doesn't have to be this terrifying hurdle to get over to keep you from doing uh, what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a huge lesson for me in that. And I do a lot of freshman advising because I'm at a small institution. It's undergrads that I work with. I don't have graduate students. And, you know, it's sort of that idea that sometimes you have these fears that are justified and sometimes they're not justified. Um, but they can keep you from doing things. It was really ironic that then I turned around and got a PhD basically in something that was chemistry related. <laughs> um, it's a glutton for punishment sort of situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although also just learned a lot that there was no reason for me to have been so afraid that it's it's really fascinating stuff, you know? Yeah, and, and like you said, especially if you can apply it to interesting questions. But yeah. I mean, from a chemical standpoint, when you go into the realm of botany, there's a lot of avenues you could take. Plants are these oh, yeah. more than a lot of organisms, these chemical factories. You know, people yeah. have listened in the past and heard that fact being reiterated time and time again. But where where did you kind of decide, OK, I can either go this defense route, I can go these metabol, I can go photosynthesis, pure physiology. Uh, where, did, where did you end up going? What kind of things set the path to, to where you're at today? Well, I think, so it just so happened that I was in these chemistry classes when I met um, who would then later become my PhD advisor, um, Robert Gusso, who was at the time down in South Carolina, University of South Carolina. And I went down to do an undergraduate project with him that I was working on with this mentor that I had up in New Hampshire, and it was on pollination ecology. And because I had grown up outdoors, spending a lot of time outside looking at plants, very interested in sort of taxonomy and knowing the names of things, it just felt familiar and then getting, I, I just, pollination biology is fascinating. I mean, if you look at the interplay between the evolution of the insects involved, if you're talking about insect pollinator plants and the potential for evolution and, you know, ecological factors on floral phenotype, you know, the interactions thereof, it's just marvelous. So I got there when I was starting this project and it just kind of stuck. That's really neat. And, uh, you know, Rob is a previous podcast guest and it's amazing. Okay. You know, his legacy has kind of lived on in a lot of researchers <laughs> like yourself. You know, it's like yeah, I, w yeah. I went to this orchid bee conference in Costa Rica and everyone, oh, yeah, you know, and the work by Raguso and others. Uh, it's just it's so cool to kind of get those sort of networks <laughs> and to see how people's influence can then go on and breed fruitful scientific careers of their own like yours. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, when you start getting into plants, and especially flowering plants, this interplay between plants and insects, it's just, it, there's so many questions and so many things to marvel at. And then you stop to think, okay, you're looking at these flowers, we love flowers, people just want to cover their walls and their yards with flowers. And in all of those, and in many contexts, were shaped and, and brought about through this interplay with insects. You know, you're kind of looking at some sort of signal that really appeals to some sort of insect or group of insects, right? Yeah, well, Matt, that's actually fabulous lead into the whole mimicry thing, because <laughs> that's it right there. I mean, what you're looking at is the sort of 3D printer design of what the insect's sensory perception has, in a way, sculpted. I mean, I don't want, don't want to sound too much like you know, directed evolution, but you no, know, you I understand. broad diversity of like what could happen. 
And then you look at something like one of those plants that, you know, where the flower looks like a dead carcass, you know, it's hairy and it stinks and it's mottled, you know, red brown kind of coloration. It's amazing that you get there from just random phenotypic variation and an insect's selection towards certain things like a dead animal. I mean, it's it's amazing. Right. And, and and I agree. It's it's tough to kind of dance around these things in a very colloquial sense, because then you start getting into this directed evolution sort of deal. And it's not. It's it's this random selection process, albeit, you know, there is some innate direction there, whether it's conscious or not. You know, we could wax poetic about that forever. But, you know, you're looking at a signal receptor sort of system here where the either the plants are fooling an insect or they're offering something in reward. But you mentioned mimicry. And to those that go outside and see a rose or a peony or, you know, a sweet pea flower, it's beautiful. They smell nice. There's, it's very obvious. But floral mimicry just kind of sounds strange. What's, what's the case here with floral mimicry? What is floral mimicry? Well, it's, it's pretty broad. And depending on what you <laughs> ask, you get different um, definitions. So I do – the thing that I really am finding fascinating about it right now is that you know, it's a field that is expanding. It's got so much potential, especially in the chemical aspects of mimicry, um, but, you know, all different aspects. And it's coming from a literature that's richer or more historically solidified in animal mimicry. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this existing set of definitions and context that don't really work the same for floral mimicry. I'll give you an example you know, some current publications, like just came out last year, year before, talking about definitions of mimicry and how you frame this, you know, field, not floral specific, but just mimicry in general, saying that floral mimicry as a thing can exist under Batesian mimicry. If you're familiar with Batesian mimicry, where one thing, it looks like something, and it's basically mimicking having some sort of defensive trait in Uh, most cases with animals, like a toxin that it doesn't possess. So, you know, one of the classic ones is with butterflies that, you know, some are palatable, but they look like the non-palatable or the toxic butterflies. And so if a bird has eaten the nasty thing, it doesn't want to eat that pattern anymore and the pattern itself starts saving the ones that don't possess that toxin right that's why i'm very hesitant to grab even hoverflies in my garden because that's pretty bee like yeah exactly it and so with flowers with this kind of thing if you have mimicry then this is pollination right um so by sort of definition if this is a mimicry system that invites pollination you're looking at attractive signals so some people would argue that that can't be batesian because it's attracting the operator the animal that misclassifies it as opposed to it being a defensive system. I don't prescribe to that, but that's just an (laughs) example of some of the arguing that goes on or the differing of views in terms of how these things get constructed. Right. And, and I mean, you understand the utility of that from a scientific standpoint, it does matter in these fields and it does matter when you're publishing, Mm -hmm. uh, especially on these topics, but in a broad spectrum, you know, mimicry, you can say that to the average person and you, you understand what a mimic is and that basic principle, no matter where it's couched in the theoretical standpoint, you have something pretending to be something else for some benefit. Yes, right. And I'm guessing that in the floral world, that's a very broad spectrum of possibilities. <laughs> right. Well, there's there's a pretty good literature on flowers that mimic other flowers. For example, there's a lot of Mullerian mimicry in, in flowers where you have different flowers sharing similar phenotypes and all offering similar rewards. So you share on the end of teaching the pollinator what to come to, but then you all offer up the same thing. Mm. 
I'm much more interested in the Batesian side of things where flowers are sort of deceptive. They're pretending to have something that they don't. And you can have flowers that pretend to be rewarding flowers that are nearby. Steve Johnson's done a lot of work with that with Dysa orchids and just beautifully shown, you know, how different aspects of the phenotype, the color, the shape, the presentation of the flowers just beautifully mimic other non-orchids nearby that have nectar. That's just one example. Right. I get really... I find that fascinating, but much more interested in flowers that are trying to be, I just trying to be, but <laughs> look like, have a phenotype that is indicative of something completely non-floral. Hmm. Okay. So there's a lot to talk about there from that concept, but before we dive right into that, I, I think it's worth mentioning a few, uh, you know, kind of broad type examples, or at least questions that I have. So mm -hmm. when I go outside to the prairie this time of year, it seems like everything is either yellow or purple. A lot of them are asteraceae, you know, they're related to some extent, but is that kind of what you're getting at as like this broad mimicry, kind of all sharing the same cue, but offering rewards nonetheless? Um... Or is that too broad too broad of a brush? It, it may be a little too broad to all lump that into some sort of mimicry paradigm. But, sure. I mean, you are looking at, you know, it would I guess you could look at specific examples of species that do that, but at the same time you're looking at things that have the highest stimulation for the different photoreceptors in the hymenopteran eye or in the umatidia. So going out and seeing a ton of yellow sunflower ish looking plants, that could just be again narrowing down the possible options to what a bee or any sort of bees just happen to be really akin to seeing and, and, and reacting to. Right, right. I mean, they like those colors best because they see those colors best. They stand out against the background best to them. Sure. Um, and the same could be said for scents, of course. I mean, you've got sort of a large group of different floral volatiles that are somewhat ubiquitous, or at least extremely common um, in different flowering plant species, and they're generally attractive. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the challenge there is that, you know, you maybe want to use the same cues as other plants around you to attract an assemblage of pollinators, but then you want to stand out in some way so that the pollinators learn floral constancy to some degree so that they don't <laughs> take your pollen just anywhere, but they take it to the appropriate flower. Right. Like a, sen a sense of instilling something like fidelity. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, okay, you mentioned earlier this mimicry in terms of deception or not rewarding. And I just absolutely love this because it flies in the face of this idea of pollination being this beautiful altruistic, uh, you give, I give, we're harmonizing and stuff like, no, each party wants to get as much with giving as little in return. Exactly. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of your research focuses is this idea of mimicking or, or setting up a ruse that can then tap into some sort of pollinator for lack of a better word, psyche, but uh, to do so in a way that they don't have to give as much or anything in return, correct? Right, right. Yes, that's fascinating. I mean, and that's where a lot of the chemistry comes in, as well as the visual phenotypes and the morphology and all, is that, you know, you're pretending to be something you're not. So we're used to flowers that smell like a rose or <laughs> smell that, like a gardenia or something like that. But Flowers that smell like poop or flowers that smell like decomposing carrion of some sort is just bizarre. Yeah. And you wonder how flowers, you know, evolutionarily, like we were talking about this being sort of a random walk through different possibilities of phenotype and being selected down to things that a fly might find attractive. Um, how do you land on, you know, these sulfides? How do you land on these different aminoid compounds that are just stinky and nasty yeah. um, in terms of the spectra, you know, the palette that you're working with for biochemistry for these plants? Yeah, it's so wild to think about where did that first set of mutations happen 
And and then was it a snowball effect that it happened rapidly, or did this something that came online and uh, you know gradually over eons, millennia, uh, whatever time period here, just kind of sorted itself out? It, yeah. You know, is that can you look at the chemistry, or do you need also you know some sort of genetic timeline here for these sorts of mutations and and, and adaptations throughout different lineages? There's some really good work going on right now looking at that, you know, looking at sister taxa, some that are mimics, some that aren't, and looking at timelines of how certain traits within lineages, how they arose or when they arose, and then trying to match that up to phylogenies or timelines with the pollinators um, that are involved in that particular ruse, if you will, that system. It's all really fascinating questions. And I think there's a lot to come of that. I'm interested in going in that direction at some point. I mean, right now I'm interested in some flowers that smell like yeasty. Well, I won't even say they smell like yeasty fruit because they don't really put out the fruity esters that you associate mm. with fruit. Um, their floral scents are dominated pretty much by yeasty smells. Hmm. But there's so much work to do in this particular area and this particular group that I'm looking at. Asimina trilobe is one of the yeasty smelling ones. Yeah. Um, there are a number of species that have no yeasty odor, um, completely different floral scents. This is what I did for my PhD, was characterize the odor for this entire genus of pawpaws or simina. Awesome. Yeah. And that's going back to something you mentioned earlier, is that there's a whole selection of species related and not related that aren't mimicking other flowers. And we kind of touched on it that some might be mimicking poop or mm -hmm. a rotting carcass. You know, some people will be very familiar with the idea of a carrion flower, like the titanarum right. or Rafflesia. But, okay, pawpaws are big. They, they NPR, thanks to them, and a few books <laughs> have made them, like, kind of the rock star hipster version of uh, whatever a tree could possibly be right now. But <laughs> anyone that's... I love it, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's so nice to see this, like, esoteric group of small trees and shrubs getting the limelight. But then, you know, everyone's like, ooh, flower's pretty. And I've been around people that go up and smell a pawpaw flower, and like oh what's that <laughs> what's going on there and 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 what are they you know what what is this case of non-floral mimicry mimicry you know what i mean yeah yeah well in the different genres of non-floral mimicry where you might have mimicry of poop or carrion things like that this yeasty mimicry seems to be something that's getting more attention now i hope it gets a lot more attention it's not as sexy if you will as the dimethyl disulfide and dimethyl trisulfide nasty stinky things that smell like dead carrion yeah but there's a whole group of plants that have this sort of yeasty fermented odor and it's not what we would call floral right sure but it's certainly odor that is a great marker for yeast fermentation right so if you're walking through the woods and you smell something like that you might look on the ground and expect to see some rotting fruit say in an apple orchard yeah. or you know a pawpaw grove where you've got these large fleshy fruits laying on the ground slowly fermenting and decaying down there it's pretty easy for humans to pick up on, and flies are great at finding those odors in the middle of a giant heterogeneous environment. Right. So I, I think it's something great that the flowers sort of tap into. The pollinator work on pawpaw is pretty sparse. There was a study in 1980 by um, Wilson and Chemsky looking at pollinators in Illinois, and oh. they found very, very few. Um, they did some focal sort of observation work on flowers, and they didn't get really many visitors at all. So then they went around to different flowers and just peeked into them. 
Um, and I think overall they found about 80 or so observations, maybe a few more than that. Wow. And they were largely flies, um, medium flies, like musket type flies. And I believe they found a couple of beetle species. And, I, and it's been a while since I've looked at it, but that was about it. Right? Sure. Yeah. And it's something you see get repeated all the time. I've noticed is that pawpaws, again, have seen this kind of rise in popularity as a species or as a group. And then you just have every popular media site saying, oh, and they are pollinated by XYZ because of this one paper where someone made, you know, a handful of observations. Right. And actually, some other authors have called it scent fetid. So people have compared it to rotting meat. And I think that goes, you know, again, sort of draws in this idea that it must be fly pollinated, but we don't really have, you know, solid data. That was fun with the chemistry of it. See, humans aren't that great at actually smelling things and having a language for it. Um, but they do not smell like rotten meat. Just to put that out no, there. I can I can oh. attest to that. I've stuck my nose in a fair amount of pawpaw flowers. Yes, much more baking bread, red wine kind of yeah, smell. Yeah. I actually find it pleasant. I, I do too, and I've always thought I was weird for that. So I'm good in good company. No. <laughs> not in high quantity, but in a few, um, they're good. Yeah. What's nice at our field site here, we're actually, I know a lot of people have complained about lack of pollinators, and I'm assuming that there's probably some environmental, like, heterogeneity where some sites are more frequently visited than others. And I'd be, I'm really interested in sort of pursuing a study looking at pollination in different geographic areas of mm. the Pawpaws range, because you may know it, it goes from like South Georgia and Alabama all the way up to basically New York State and Southern Canada. Yeah. And just west of the Mississippi a little bit. So it's got really interesting ecology for pollination. Um, at our local field site, we actually see a pretty good number of flies, not to give away spoilers. But... <laughs> right. So, okay, they're making this odor, and, and, and a lot of plants, relatively speaking, have, have converged on a similar strategy, like you said, this fermenting fruit. So would you call this fruit mimicry first? And second off, is this something where they produce nectar that is favorable to yeast, and then you start to get actual fermentation, so the scent is coming from an actual fermentation process? Or are they actually producing compounds akin to something that a yeast would give off? Based on some work from my PhD, we actually tried to sterilize some of the flowers, take scent from those. Um, we tried to culture what might be on the flowers. Rob Raguso is actually expanding on that work now at Cornell with a grad student that he has in his lab. So they're working on that. But as far as I can tell, and from updates that I've gotten from Rob and his student Kyle, is that it may be augmented by things growing in the tissue hmm. or on the tissue, yeasts, but it is definitely coming from the floral tissue to a large degree. Hmm. And the flowers do put out a little bit of exudate. So if you open up a pawpaw flower, it's kind of got this corrugate tissue down on the inner surface of the inner world of petals, yellow. It's different from the maroon color of the rest of the petal. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, it looks like it's sweating if you look at it. Um, it's just kind of, you know, little glistening patches within this three-dimensional tissue kind sure. of area. And the flies love it. So the flies are definitely going into the inner world and just sitting there and lapping up stuff. They lap, lap, lap. And then they, you know, they hang out for a good long time. You get lots of good pictures and then they fly away. Rob and Kyle have been seeing beetles actually up in Ithaca, New York. Oh. So that's part of my reason for thinking the ecology in different parts of this really broad range, probably quite different or possibly different, you know. Yeah. I mean, you would expect the insect fauna of Georgia to be radically different than the insect fauna of upstate New York, where it's winter right, for right. nine to 10 months out of the year. Right. And if you're this tree that has these flowers that smell like fermentation, 
Um, whether you want to call it fermentation of fruit or not, I'm still on the fence on that. But fermentation, I mean, you're attracting any animal out there, any pollinator that might be interested in something that has got some sugary, fermentable substance, be it sap or fruit or I don't know. Yeah. I, that's one of the problems that we're hit with right now is finding that model. Right. What is it trying to pretend to be? You know, it's easy to say, well, the pawpaw makes these huge fruit. Maybe it's just mimicking its own fruit, but they're temporally very separated. Yeah, big time. <laughs> are there in yeah September, the flowers are there in April, at least at our field site. So, you know, it's not the same fly. It may be the same group of, you know, community of flies over multiple generations. But yeah. So going back a little bit on from a theoretical standpoint, you know, okay, you can smell the flower, you can run some chemical analyses and detect the compounds that are coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And, and and like you said, you can go in search of this this model or set of models. But from a theoretical standpoint, when do you decide, okay, this is mimicry, and then go from, okay, it's mimicking something, or is it, do you say, okay, I found a possible model that says it's mimicry? Like, from a theoretical standpoint, as a scientist, how do you make these calls when it comes time to publish? <laughs> well, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. Okay. Um, this work on Pawpaw is not published yet, so oh. I'll be fighting that battle yeah. <laughs> um, or finding out how I want to articulate this. I mean, it's I think it's a really good question right now because, I mean, that is the question. You've got papers out there that are very nice and discreet. Take some of the orchid work where they've identified a floral scent compound that is you know, chemically identical to the sex pheromone of the female of the pollinating species of wasp, right, <laughs> or bee. So in that case, you've got the smoking gun right there. Yep. <laughs> you've got this chemistry, and that's great. And clearly that weird chemical, you know, it's unique to that particular orchid species. And sister taxa have completely different chemicals that attract a completely different, you know, wasp or bee. Yeah. That's great. And then if you've got one of those carrion flowers, you've got the hair and the stink and everything else to go along with it. With these, sure. <laughs> you've got yeasty smells. I would argue that those aren't, of course, typical flower smells. The flowers are offering something. They're offering some exudate that the flies are clearly partaking of. So where do you draw the line between a flower that's got an honest resource for the fly and it's just generally attractive to a flower that's not being a flower but mimicking something else? Hmm. And it's blurry. I don't think that there is an answer either or. I think you make an argument. Um, For this, my argument would be... You see, I'm not going to make an argument until I have more of a clear picture. To <laughs> and that's by. quite all right. But what I would say, the testable hypothesis here is that either one, I find a model in the local environment at the same time. So, you know, in April mm. in this area. Now, there's not a lot of fruit out then. It's very early in the spring here. And these are some of the first flowers to open. So one question, is it possible that fruit persist over winter and then act as a, you know, holdover resource in the spring for the fly species uh... in the area? I've had some people suggest that there may be sap that's fermenting from nearby trees and that that may be a fermentation source, you know, because the flies frequently are feeding on whatever sucrose or sugar it is that that is there, but also on the yeast. So all you really need is something for yeast to grow on. Hmm. I haven't been able to pin down any of those. There's one other sort of approach that I want to take, which is just putting out fermenting fruit lures like you know, for a week or two before anthesis for these flowers um, to see what kind of fly community there is that's generally attracted to fruit. That's cool. And I think that that would at least, the flies may be opportunists. You know, they may show up to anything that's fermenting and an array of different other food sources. I don't know. 
We don't know much about the pollinators. That's the other problem. We really, these aren't model, Drosophila, yes, is a model organism. Yes. Um, but even that, the ecology of it, we don't know the natural ecology of the Drosophila nearly as well as we know lab behaviors and, and Oh, stuff. sure. I mean, we know a ton about, uh, say, carpenter ants and roaches, but that's mostly under the guise of how do we kill them, Um, (laughs) you know, and I'm sure it it can be said for myriad organisms across the globe, but that's a really good point to make is that, okay, bees, very sexy pollinators, butterflies, also very sexy pollinators, they sell themselves, flies, (laughs) eh, small little fruit flies, they're lucky if people even notice they're there when they're not sitting on, you know, their kitchen table or trying to get in their glass of wine. Right, not sexy. I have had a lot of angst over convincing my students that flies matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that they should join me and go out and look for flies in the spring. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it's one of those situations where, again, I think it's great that certain things capture the public's imagination, but at the same time, to constantly rehash on those as being the only thing worth studying can be dangerous for science because yeah. it does detract from these quote-unquote lesser-known organisms. And I often hear these people, people will say, well, all the low-hanging fruit's gone, we have to go for this boring. It's like, no, it's not. There's tons of low-hanging fruit. It's just, it's flies or a flower that smells like rotting fruit or a flower that smells like poop, you know? Right, right. There was a great moment this past field season where, you know, we're out looking for models. So I was collecting anything that might be a source of fermentation outside, you know, anything that looks slimy or wet or organically decaying. Um, And that was exciting in and of itself. But at one point last spring, we came over um, some frugivore poop. I know it was frugivore poop because it had a bunch of seeds in it. (laughs) Um, And mulberries were fruiting at that point. So that would be my best bet taxonomically of what was in the poo. But that was it. I mean, it was just a whole mass of seeds and a whole bunch of flies. (laughs) And there was just this great moment where I looked at my students. I was holding a vial in my hand. And, you know, I looked at the poo. And I looked at the students, and none of them would make eye contact with me. <laughs> and I was like, you know, we're doing this. <laughs> the mark of a true scientist, though. I mean, that's yeah. honestly when they say, like, you got to separate the wheat from the chaff. Are you willing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were a little bit embarrassed for me. But I, this is a lot of fun for me. We're, we're just, maybe we'll come across something. So far, honestly, the poop did not have fermentation volatiles. I'm not hmm. completely surprised by this because you're thinking about, like, what microbes survive passing through yeah. a gut and stuff. And, yeah, we, we found vegetative matter and things like that were decaying, had no fermentation odors that we detected. Um, we're using GCMS. Um, gas chromatography mass spectrometry to do the analyses and solid phase micro extraction for the sampling technique and all of this you know I'm we've clearly identified the compounds that come from yeast over and over again on this machine and with this method so yeah so we're just we're not finding it in these things right now but got to be out there right, right? And, and and it's really curious too and I'm, I'm wondering because it's this idea of a model and you would you would hear a model and like in the system like an ofreeze orchid the model mm-hmm. is that one insect who they're mimicking the pheromones of you know mm-hmm. is it is is a model system is that a spectrum of possibilities where you have a generalized model versus a very specific model I would assume you know just mimicking rotting something yeah. Uh, or fermenting something, it can still be mimicry. It's just, you know, are you specifically mimicking a crab apple rotting or a mulberry, right. you know? Well, this is, yeah, this is a really important question in the field of floral mimicry, I think, because most people who read papers on staphylids that are hairy or, you know, like you said, the dead horse arum or something like that, that are just 
hairy and stinky and the color of maybe carrion are willing to say that, yes, of course, that's mimicry. That's mimicry of carrion. But how specific is that? Right. Does it need to be a big carcass or a small carcass or a carcass that's two days old or a carcass that's two hours old? There's all sorts of questions you could ask there. So the same thing with, with yeast fermentation, I would ask. How specific does it need to be if it's pulling in pollinators that are expecting some sort of sugary fruit resource that they can either feed from or lay eggs in? Is the flowers resource, the exudate, enough? Do they incur a cost? You were asking earlier, like, what's the demarcation between, like, mimicry and not mimicry? And I think for me, it sits somewhere on, like, the cost to the operator or the pollinator in the system. Yeah. Um, if it's not what they were expecting, but it's kind of acceptable. This review that I wrote in New Phytologist on full mimicry of fruit with Andreas Jurgens. Mm-hmm. Paper that I found you for. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, one thing we sort of pulled there were these spectrums or spectra of different things. For example, you know, does it need to be a specific model or not a specific model? Um, Andreas pulled in some terms that um, I thought were really useful. The non-deceitful abstract homotopy, for example, or generalized food deception, which is sort of what you were just saying. All those cases where you don't really have a specific model, but it's generally mimicking or being like a food source. Is that mimicry or not? A lot of people would say it's not true mimicry if it's generalized food deception, for example. Hmm. Yeah, and and I like this idea of cost because in reading your work and and talking to you, you know, for the time we've been speaking here, is it's it. I keep in my own head saying, okay, where's the cost here? And I guess whether mm-hmm. it's pawpaw specifically, triloba, or any of the aseminas that are doing this yeasty scent. Is this food deception? There is some reward, you said, but are these flies going there to lay eggs? Is there a cost to them visiting these flowers? And, you know, again, we can save this for when you finally do publish and get those ideas out there. But in what you've seen, is there a cost associated with a fly visiting a pawpaw flower? Well, here's what I think on that. Partly based on my search for two field seasons now for a model in the general area, um, the flies are showing up. Right. So they're they're definitely there. Um, We've seen them covered in pollen. We've seen them hanging out in flowers. These are medium sized flies, Muscadae and um, Sarcophagidae and Califoridae, although mostly Muscadae by a long shot. There's definitely Drosophila out there. They're definitely seem to be getting something out of the flower. The fact that they're there feeding, like licking that exudate and spending a good deal of time in each flower as they go from flower to flower. So I think there is a true reward. They seem to be there looking for food based on their behavior. But you've got to think like a fly in right. this case, right? Yeah. Um, you're out there. It's early spring. You're one of the first pollinators available, really, because at that point you don't have a lot of hymenopterans around, right? You sure. don't have lepidopterans hanging out at that time of the year. They do well in cooler habitats, flies, as pollinators, right? So when you've got the April weather up here where it turns cold for a week and then warms back up, flies really handle that well. So they're ideal for this time. I don't know what they're feeding on since we're not so far finding them on or in something, either on the ground or in the trees besides the flowers. So I don't know if this is a true resource that is a holdover until they get more resources like the mulberries, for example, falling towards the end of the flowering of pawpaw. But even if that's the case, like you said, if we don't know whether they're there to lay eggs or to feed, then we don't know how what kind of cost they might be incurring by being in the flowers. Sure. Yeah, and that really harkens to this idea that it's great to have these systems set up and have all your just study design and stuff, but it really comes down to natural history observation. Someone taking the time to observe, to document, to watch these sort of interactions play out. Yeah, right. And I mean, that 
that's something we could do more of. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, this has been a big learning curve for me because I'm used to floral biology and, and thinking about things from the plant focal perspective. But so much of this pushes you to really understand the, the perspective, the focus of the pollinator. Right. You know, what's its motivation? What's it's looking for? What's its life history? What's its life cycle? Yeah. Um, What's it doing in April? You know, what is it doing in September? Something I'd like to add on to this, you know, as I get this together for publication is is the fly community that's around when the fruits are present in September and October. You know, is it the same species? Are they prevalent all year round? You know, or at least, say, late March through the end of October? Or does the taxonomic community of flies change? Yeah. Yeah. Even just like you said, the players, you, you even mentioned there was a handful of different groups that are visiting in, yeah. in various numbers and stuff. And it, it's what I love about botanical research is plants are so darn important that you start asking questions, you inevitably get involved with other walks of life and you start to get this <laughs> bigger ecosystem perspective just because you're asking a question about a flower. And yeah. I do like this idea that you know, going back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation that you do have to understand something about the pollinator because that's the cue that all of this is keying in on. That's what these flowers are. Yes. You yes, know, that's yes. the, the that's the, the selection pressure is the perception of the pollinator, whether that be olfactory, tactile, visual or right. a mixture of all of them. Well, and one thing that hasn't been looked at is all that much is chemoreception, unlike, you know, tactile stuff. So taste receptors, gustatory you know, if you've got chemoreceptors in tarsi and the, the flies, you know, the tarsal drumming and things that, that has been studied in, say, a lot of lepidopterans with egg laying, mm. for example, um, what are these flies experiencing when they walk on the flower? I think that that's probably something really important with mimicry because it's one thing to trick a fly or flies are frequently the duped operators <laughs> in these systems, um, you know, tr to trick it into visiting. And that's fine if you're a big Aris Aristolochia flower where it walks sure. down a tube and then, you know, hairs are pointing a certain way and it gets trapped. And now it's going to pollinate as it tries to figure its way out. Same thing for a lot of orchids that are mimics and seropegia mimics and things. But if you're a big open flower, and Pawpaw is an example of that, not only do you need the fly to be fooled enough to show up, but then you need it to move around and touch the right parts and hang out long enough. Yeah. Um, so you've got a whole other realm. Now with the pawpaws, it's nice because you have that reward. So I think for some people that probably takes it out of mimicry right off because it's a rewarding flower. But, you know, some flowers don't offer rewards and you still need the fly to walk around and do its thing. Yeah, and it's curious because kind of across the board with Asimina, they're rather showy flowers. It's not like these are tiny, nondescript little things. You know, there's colors. Some are red, some are white. Some look like handkerchiefs hanging down. And, <laughs> and you know, that fetid thing when people started saying rotting meat, you, you know, you look at a pawpaw flower, that's kind of pink and purplish. It, it could be meat. It's not obviously <laughs> smelling like that, but... And and it's even funnier to me that flies end up the dupees often because it's, you know, you sit in your car or something, you see a fly and it's just hitting that window, not going out the little corner. It's like, yeah, I could see why they're duped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get they get a bad rep for, you know, smartness. Yeah. A lot of older botanists, you know, the classical treatises on pollination talking about the sad and unsmart fly. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it works and they're underappreciated. That's one thing we can say for sure after this conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, um, and I don't know how opportunistic they are, too. How, like you said, like narrow a target you need for a mimic versus just broadly interesting possible food source they might investigate. Don't know. Yeah. 
So many questions. To yeah. You. And that's great. I mean, like you said, you're you're almost a decade into this and you still, I, I mean, just talking to you, you can hear that, A, the passion has not left you at all. And, and just this idea that you get into something, you ask one question, you find something and that, you know, branches off. It's that cliche is one question opens up doors to all the things that you could be asking. And we, the more we know, the less we know sort of thing. But that is totally the case in this system. And it sounds like you have an entire career's worth of questions ahead of you to be asking and to be playing in, and in a system that you obviously very much enjoy. Well, that's what I tell my students is that, you know, any good question in science should lead to a whole bunch of new questions. That's how you get a career. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. And, and I mean, is, is the Asimina system the, the focus, or have you branched out into other plant groups? Uh, I mean, we can go into that as deep or as, as shallow as you'd like, but what are, what are some of the other systems that, that interest you or could potentially be or that you've worked on? Well, I have been with Asimina for a long time. I actually did some postdoc work looking at vegetative volatiles and herbivores that eat several different local species. And that was some work that we did here at Widener. That actually took me away from a seminar for a while, but that work got held up for some reasons, various reasons. Um, but that's also fascinating. So, I mean, I love looking at chemical diversity. Just in a nutshell, you've got one herbivore that eats on four taxonomically distinct, you know, separate groups of plants in the same habitat here. And they're all crazy with the defensive chemistry. They have really interesting foliar chemistry. Those smells from leaves are just you can basically identify the plants by sniffing them. <laughs> so, you know, and it's it's ones you know, it's it's spicebush, lindera benzoin, and sassafras yeah. uh, is one of them. So Papa was in that group. And um, tulip poplar, which actually doesn't have a lot of really strong smell. But you've got one group of caterpillars that eats all of those, and then that caterpillar gets parasitized. So there's a lot of really cool questions to look at with the scent there. That's been one thing that I've looked at with undergrads a whole bunch. And then I sort of accidentally ended up working on a biomechanics project with Papa. Um, <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> it's funny what happens at a small institution. You yeah. may lack some support, but on the other hand, you get the freedom to do anything you want. Sure. <laughs> and so a friend of mine who's here who's a biomechanics person, he does more like muscle physiology work. We notice this phenomenon. You spend a lot of time, like you said, outside and looking at organisms and doing sort of natural history stuff. And you notice things. And pawpaw does this weird thing where its branches actually, if you go out after a storm, pawpaw is clonal. So you get all these smaller trees around the more mature trees. And if you look at it, you've got all these narrow, thin branches. And it looks like it's been tossed around like in a dryer. There's a whole bunch of upside down leaves. If you know pawpaw, it's got these huge leaves, right? Yeah, yeah, giant tropical uh, leaves. Right, right. They don't look like they should be in a temperate forest. Anyway, we were out doing other work with pawpaw, this herbivore work that I was talking about and a lot of the pollination work that I've more recently been doing. Um, and you see that the leaves are upside down and you think that branches are broken. And that's sort of what it looks like. But if you actually look at the branches up close, they're completely upside down. So you've got this like seven or nine distal leaves and they're all, you know, bottom up, which is probably photosynthetically a bit of a cost for the yeah. plant. But if you twist the branch, this thin little woody branch um, right side up, it immediately recoils back to that upside down thing. It's not broken, but it is stuck in that weird upside down configuration. Huh. Um, and if you go out like 12 hours later, the, the branch will be at 90 degrees. Weird. <laughs> and the leaves are, you know, well hydrated and pretty stiff at that point. So they're just, it's, you know, sitting there on its side. And then you go out later and all the branches are upright. They've righted themselves. 
so that was fascinating. And luckily I work here with a pretty awesome biomechanics person and he gave me his expertise and ideas on how we might test this. And we talked to a lot of people at conference or two and got some ideas. And basically the twigs show this weird viscoelastic property, which I don't know. I won't go into too much. It's a whole <laughs> different podcast. Sure, perhaps. sure. But um, basically we showed that they have this interesting ability to sort of reconfigure over time that other branches with similar leaf loads don't do. Wow. So that was cool and a weird tangent to go down yeah. for my own research, but it was a lot of fun and we got undergrads doing it. And cool. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, exactly. And again, like you said, going back to this idea that you're out in the field, you're making these observations and you're going, well, that's curious. Yeah. And yeah. then look what came out of it. And <laughs> and, and again, you know, you're, you're essentially this chemical pollination ecologist that just happened to make this observation. Now you're collaborating with a, a, a biomechanicist, getting undergrads involved into scientific research, getting right, to know that, yeah, that's, out that's there fantastic. And everything. Yeah, yeah, no, that was, that was great. And that actually, you know, was a nice way to, to get some stuff moving as I was starting to get this idea of pollination mimicry. This actually, this idea of floral mimicry with pawpaws, all along we had said it smelled like yeast and these seemed to be yeasty smelling flowers and, you know, Rob and I actually, in some of my early dissertation work, looked at the smell of yeast and, you know, chemically analyzed that and compared it to the smell of the flowers. And yeah, sure, there's the same compounds. <laughs> but we hadn't really tested the mimicry part of it, which is what I'm getting to now, with all that I just told you about. And I was actually working on a grant with somebody in the Netherlands who works on more phylogenetics of Ananaceae, the family. And we needed an ecological spin for this. And we were actually talking about a lot of the neotropical species of pawpaw and the idea that a lot of them have these fruity odors. And it's interesting because in this family, sure, you've got the Asimina genus with several species of yeasty smelling flowers, but then you've got a tremendous number of flower, you know, different species of Ananaceae in the tropics, which have fruity scents. They're described hmm. as like, you know, banana is one of the most frequently described smells. Weird. Um, and then you've got, you know, others that smell like pineapple and others that smell like, you know, they've been de described as all these different tropical sort of fruity odors from these flowers. And then if you read really carefully in the literature, some of them are fresh fruit, you know, ripe fruit, that yeah. kind of thing. but then some are like rancid fruit, very clearly fermented fruit yeah. smells. So there's a whole chemical diversity of how you get to fruity and ripe fruity versus rotten fruity, you know, smells. And these are largely beetle pollinated. So again, you're tapping into potential mimicry systems where you have an operator or pollinator that's got this fruit loving ecology. There's a lot there. I think yeah. there's a lot of directions to go with that. So we were trying to put this together into a grant, and thus I dove into the literature of floral mimicry and then fell in love. And Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. What a great family to have fallen into. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love this family. <laughs> Plus, it gives me a reason to travel to the tropics worldwide. So Bingo. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, perks. I love it. There's some advice for undergrads. If, if you want to find out, you know, a great thing to study for the rest of your life, try to pick something that is global, grows where you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the options. Yeah. Very cool. Well, if people want to find out more about your work or keep up to date with your publications and, and everything we talked about that's going to be coming out in the not too distant future, how do you recommend they find out more about you? Um, I know a lot of our undergrads are actually on ResearchGate. I don't know if you know, does that seem popular to you? I'm on ResearchGate. So yeah, yeah. I'll put up a, 
I'll put up a link to your page on ResearchGate, and that's usually a much easier way for the general public to access papers than, say, Google Scholar. Yes, yes. It's very friendly that way. Plus, it gives good updates for, you know, what your projects are and right. collaborators and all that. Wonderful. So that's good. I have a web page that needs updating, but... Um, Don't we all? They always do, yes. <laughs> yes. It's good. It's but, a sign of active careers. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that. And, yeah, I mean, anybody's welcome to always email me, too. Wonderful. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I think you've got a lot of great questions being asked and to be asked. And uh, please keep us up to date. You are welcome back on any time. Let us know what the flies are doing. Let us know what the fruits <laughs> are doing. Let us know if you find a model. Thank you, Matt. I will definitely email you as soon as I find one. <laughs> Good. I, I, I very much anticipate that email. Top of my list. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. All right. Well, you have yourself a great day. All right. Thank yep. you very much. Yep. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Dr. Goodrich for taking time out of her busy schedule back in 2018 to have that conversation. And as always, you can find links to her work as well as all of the other relevant topics we discussed over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just look in the show notes. While you're there, you can also find a myriad ways of supporting the show. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, or as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. You can also purchase a copy of my book or stickers. All of those help ensure Indefensive Plants has a future. Speaking of support, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Brian and Tanner. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the kickbacks you can over there while keeping the show up and running. Thank you to Brian and Tanner, and of course, thank you to all the patrons that make this show possible. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.